Um, so I don't need to. Do I need to introduce myself? Because I feel like I've been here a couple of days, and you know who I am, and I'm gradually getting to know you. So I'm David Webster, one of the directors at Eastgate. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, our people do powerful things because they believe they are powerful people. Um, there was a time when we didn't really talk much about ourselves, like in the church. Um, I don't know if you remember those days. Um, and it's almost like we needed permission to be able to talking about ourselves because we were so, in one sense, rightfully caught up with glorifying God, you know, and he's, let's give him all the glory, um, that it actually prevented us sometimes from thinking too much about ourselves. And, and if we did, we felt guilty about it. And if we did think about ourselves, it was often to our detriment. You know, we are still just sinners saved by grace. And obviously we've been saved by grace, but we're no longer sinners. What I like to say to provoke people is there are no sinners in this room. Did you realise that? <laughs> this is a sin-free area. That's not the same as saying that you can't, aren't capable of sinning, because unfortunately we still are, as many of us know. But it's back to this kind of being and doing thing again. If you were here, I can't remember which day it was, is it Thursday? You know, if you think what you do determines what you are, then when you go out and sin and make a mistake again, which of course you do less often now, but now as a Christian the problem is you're more kind of conscience-stricken sometimes, because, you know, God has giving you a great conscience, he's heightened that sense of awareness of what is sinful, what's holy. And so, you know, potentially, this is the irony, isn't it? Potentially, as a Christian, you can feel more sinful than when you used to when you weren't a Christian. <laughs> I mean, when you weren't a Christian, it didn't matter. I mean, you probably still felt bad, but you didn't ha- feel half as bad when you didn't, when you realise, or you didn't realise that you were accountable to a holy God. So then you become a Christian and, whoa, boy, you know, like sin comes up in sharp relief, doesn't it? And you're desperately trying to be good, uh, and you know, when, it, when it fails, you know, um, you, you can easily think. <laughs> and so you can start thinking, well, if I sin, therefore I am a sinner. The Bible says that you have been given a new nature. You have been recreated in the image of his son. And so you are no longer a sinner by nature, you are now a saint. So the most, com- the most common uh, description of a Christian in the New Testament is that you're a saint. What does saint mean? You're a holy one. Turn to the person next to you and say, I am a holy one. I am a holy one. Right? Just say it to your spirit, I am holy Right? And sometimes people say, well, you know, I know Christ is in me, but it's like Christ is in me and he's on one side and then there's my sinful self on the other side and they do battle. Okay, if you want to get deeply theological about it, you're still in Romans 7 and not in Romans 8. <laughs> if your belief about Romans 7 is that it's just a constant battle, the good that I would do, I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, I still do. To paraphrase it, that's the David Webster message version. Right? <laughs> But it's, but it's there. And some people think, yeah, I know what that feels like. So they think that Romans 7 is a description of what they're like. Actually, Romans 7 is Paul looking back to what it was like living under the law. Because the law doesn't change you. The law was never intended to change your nature. 
The law is an expression of the holiness of God, and people try to do it. And so when Paul came along and found grace, and you've all done Galatians as a church, haven't you? So you know all this stuff. <laughs> um, he's saying, did the law ever do anything for you? Well, it did in a limited sense. It just showed you what sin was like. It showed you what, how bad sin was. It didn't actually save you. And it's not something you live by now. You live by the Spirit. People get confused here because, well, actually, the way of the Spirit is obviously very similar to the way of the law in the sense that it's an ex- you know, the Spirit expresses the character of God because he is God. But the, but the Spirit empowers. The law condemns. But the Spirit empowers. Just say that to me. The law condemns. It's not your friend anymore. Well, he was never your friend, really, in that sense. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit is who empowers, and you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And lo and behold... You start behaving in the way that the law demanded because now the law is within you. Somebody said it's like, you know, carrying a knapsack on your back, isn't it? And you, you know, you're on a journey, you've got your pack lunch in the back, and all the while you're walking along, the further you go, the heavier that pack gets on you. And then you sit down and you empty the contents and you eat the contents and they go in you. Not only are you fortified inside, but the burden has been lifted off your back. That's the picture of going from a life under the law into a life of the Spirit. I wasn't going to say any of that, but I was, um, let's hope that was good. <laughs> um, the other thing, I mean, I was, I was reading this excellent book by <laughs> David Webster. <laughs> um, it is excellent. It is. <laughs> and uh, thank you. Hey, um, later. I brought my fan club with me. Always go with your fan club. Um, How many should you get, Russ? Yeah. <laughs> the wonderful Danny Silk did a foreword to this. And when, when, I, when he sent it to me, I thought, that's a really good book. <laughs> Fancy him right. And, and actually, his foreword to it was so good that I thought, I need to reply to that. So I wrote an afterword at the back. I hadn't intended to do that. And so you've got an afterword. Identity Matters, which um, if you just read Danny's foreword and the afterword, you'll get most of what's in the middle. Uh, well, that's not quite true, but, you know. But I like this paragraph. He says, Is there a difference between a royal identity and narcissism? Right? If you're not sure what narcissism is, that's kind of looking inward at yourself all the time. You're kind of fully yourself. You know, you're, uh, there's a lot of pride involved and it's a narcissistic person really doesn't look outside their own boundaries they're very internally and there's, there's a lot of fear in the Christian world that if we kind of talk a lot about ourselves well, we're not really focused on God are we? but Danny goes on and says this it's, this is, he says this is an important sorry, this is important to clarify because we often confuse these two narcissism and royal identity In our efforts to communicate the value and grandeur of who we are in Christ, we sometimes understand, we sometimes under-communicate the source and goal of the greatness we live in. Sorry, you'll have to buy the book and read that if you didn't get it. (laughs) We sometimes, uh, in our efforts to communicate the value and grandeur of who we are in Christ, we sometimes, I think sometimes or sometimes, under-communicate the source and goal of the greatness we live in. If we underestimate the fact that the death of Jesus is what gives us an option of a great and glorious life, then we forget that without him we are nothing. 
This is the bit. Every drop of our new and true identity is intended to glorify God and not us. Okay? There you've got those kind of, it goes on. The beauty of our Christ-likeness is that the greatness he imparts to us, sorry, the greatness he imparts is not for us, but instead for everyone around us. Our lives are meant to be a display of how great our Father is, and in turn to draw attention to his greatness. So in the evangelical and kind of charismatic world, we were so busy saying, give God the glory, give God the glory. We didn't give ourselves any time to think about this identity that we had, that who we are. So if you've got your Bibles with you, why don't you just look at that for a moment. We're going to jump in. This is, we're not following the PowerPoint here, but I love this verse, because this, this verse kind of set me on this kind of journey, really, some years ago. 1 Peter, I'm sure it's a familiar verse to you. Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says... But you're a chosen people. Now in our stream of churches, we had magnificent teaching from Terry Virgo and others around being chosen by God, being a people of destiny. Um, then it's a royal priesthood, come back to you in a moment, a holy nation. We got, you know, great holiness teaching uh, around that. But the royal priesthood was, uh, well, maybe we got, you know, we understood priesthood, you know, that we can... Uh, you know, we have a great high priest who's brought us into the holy place. We can pray, we can communi- commune with God. That's the a- aspect of our priesthood. But no, I don't think anybody, that, to my knowledge, really said, well, look at that word royal. If I, I must have read that verse <coughs> many, many times and just scooted, skirted over, scooted over, or skirted over, you know, the word royal. I am part of the royal Priesthood. What does royalty mean? It's kind of interesting because um, Chris Valentin did a recommendation for the book as well, and he said, "Well, David Webster's born in, you know, into uh, a country that has a monarchy, so he must understand royalty." And I'm thinking, no, <laughs> actually, I don't. Strangely enough, in fact, the fact that I'm in a country that has a royal family. Actually, what that's done for me is make me think uh, royalty is something I am not. Royalty is just restricted to the House of Windsor, not the House of Webster, or your house. <laughs> and, uh, and so actually, some, you know, the, the kind of hierarchical nature of our society that, you know, I, I know in one sense the, the Queen and the family, you know, it's a ceremonial role and... But everything around us in the British nation, isn't it, is, has indicated that royalty is something that you're not. And so when Chris Valentin, this is, uh, let me get on to the... Chris, uh, there were a number of things that happened to me that got me kind of going on the whole issue of, of royalty. And one was very simply that Chris Valentin walked into you know, this meeting that we were part in, I think, called the School of Transformation over in Bethel. And just said, you know, started to talk about us being princes and princesses. <laughs> That's a musical interlude. And, um, now, I don't know what, you know, if somebody calls you a prince, obviously if you're a man, if you're a woman, and a princess, how do you react to that? 
I had two reactions. One was, well, all my life I've grown up knowing about kings, queens and princes. Currently, I mean, in my childhood it would have been Prince Charles, and Prince Edward, Prince Andrew, Princess Anne. You know, latterly, of course, you know, Prince William, Prince Harry. Um, again, it's something I'm not. And actually, in a minority, a tiny percentage of the population can identify with that term. Or, it's a Disney character. So, Prince lands on me in terms of my identity. Well, it doesn't land on me. So, we're going, where is that? You know, where is that? A, that's, is that in my experience? And also, where's that in the Bible? And it's very difficult to find a place where you're called, literally called a prince. But, of course, you are the son of a king. Or a daughter of a king. So what does that make you? In human terms, that makes you a prince, doesn't it? And a princess. Well, I did finally uh, find a verse that indicates, in fact prophesies, that the Messiah will have children, will have sons... And daughters, in other words, we'll have princes and princesses. If you look at Psalm 45, and uh, it took me such a long time to get it, I, it took me, and then it took me another long time to believe it. <laughs> and, uh, but Psalm 45 is one of those, what they call messianic psalms. In other words, psalms that look forward to the, you know, prophesying the Messiah. You'll probably know, if you look at um, first. Uh, Psalm 45 verse 6 Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom You love righteousness and hate wickedness We've got songs like that, haven't we? Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions By anointing you with the oil of joy Which is quoted where? In the New Testament Hebrews, yes, Hebrews chapter 1 Okay so it's definitely uh, understood as a messianic psalm because this is a description that's applied to Jesus. And it's great if you're trying to persuade people that Jesus is divine because this is, you know, therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions. This is God having a conversation with God. Okay, so this is an indication, you know, of the divinity of Christ. But look at verse 16. It says this, Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. <laughs> So the sons and daughters of God are going to be princes and princesses. It's right there in that prophetic psalm. Um, and so I, bega- I began to be- begin to be convinced that actually I was a prince in the kingdom of God. And then my wife decided to go on the internet and find a, 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 nice, a nice birthday treat for our mother-in-law. Well, say our mother-in-law, her mother, my mother-in-law. And um, she found that you could do you know, the royal tour around Buckingham Palace. Anybody here done that? When I say the royal tour, I mean, it's not like the Queen takes you around. Um, who's done Buckingham Palace? Yeah? Okay. Um, so we go on that. You, you know, you kind of, it's funny actually, you, you go in, I don't know if they still do those, but you go under this kind of canopy, you know, gazebo, and you're sitting on benches, and then you pick up your audio guides, and then they take you in bunches and, you know, you sort of start working your way around, you know, the Buckingham Palace. I think it's about 12, 15 rooms. You're not, you can't go around the whole thing, but you certainly go into the throne room, the bank, you know, where the Queen has, and the banqueting room, where the, which is all laid out, you know, candlesticks and knives and forks. And it's absolutely magnificent, you know. And uh, <coughs> you get, you get, you know, you're pressing your buttons as you go around the different rooms, and you get to about room five, and then suddenly you go, right, 
get the commentary, and on comes Prince Charles. And it's like he just came round the corner. And he's, <laughs> he's describing, you know, the great works of art on the painting. And it, she's got her own, uh, you know, there's one particular gallery, one of those long galleries with all, you know, her paintings, the royal, you know, that she presumed she, she owns, and, um, or stewards for the nation. And, um, but there's one point where you, you get to not go on the red carpet as such, but where, you know, often you see it on the telly where people drive up in limousines or Jaguars or Bentleys, you know, the, the prime ministers, the presidents, the, you know, the Pope, all sorts of people, and they come in. You can't go on that bit. It's kind of railed off. You just look at it, you know, and, um, <coughs> so, <coughs> so you still feel a commoner, even though you're kind of looking, you're in the royal house. And, uh, but then you kind of turn a corner, and then there's this great, this lovely staircase, again, red carpet, uh, you know, sort of banisters, uh, you know, gold, you know, gilt, it's gold everywhere, and you get to the top, there's this huge Grecian urn, again, sort of covered with gold um, leaf. And uh, I'm just standing there thinking, get to the top of the staircase, and I'm starting to feel something is going on. And I just hear, I stand there, and I th- I'm partly thinking, why have I never been here before? Because I was 55 at that time, so I've lived in the UK 55 years, and the Queen has never invited me to her house. But now she's opening up to the whole world, and we can go in. And, um, and I just had this little quiet voice, says, this is where you belong. Amen. Right? Now, instantly, I know... I don't belong in Buckingham Palace, you know, and then when I get to the end of the tour, I can't stay, you know, <laughs> book in for a night or two or even longer. But I know that what God's saying to me is this is where you belong. You belong in the palace. You belong in the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I, dare I say, if you don't get the kind of revelation about, you know, who you are in Christ, this sense of royal identity... Go to Buckingham Palace and give it a try. <laughs> you know, not guaranteeing that anything <coughs> will happen to you. <clears throat> but, but almost, you know, in your imagination, imagine what it's like to be in that situation. That is just a shadow of what it's like to be in the throne room of the King of Kings, isn't it? Another occasion I had a vision, uh, I can't remember it's, you know, something I just saw as I was praying or when I was actually asleep. But I'm going into what I perceive to be the, the royal throne room. It's probably where the Queen, you know, knights people and gives them their MBEs and, you know, other honours. And there's this, like, an aisle. It almost feels like a bit of a kind of church situation, really. But an aisle, in, and you, you're supposed to be going up to the front. But, but my natural inclination is to take a left and go and sit at the back. You know, why would I be at the front? Or why would I be being honoured. So my natural inclination is that I'm turning like this. And as I turn, I feel this physical force kind of move me and then shoot me right up the aisle to the front. And there's the Queen and, you know, there's, there's it's not like I get knighted, a rise, a David, you know. <laughs> but, but it's that sense of that's where you belong. And, it's, and, I, and the word that came out of it for me was that God's rolling out a red carpet for you. So the, the aisle is kind of, you know, got this red carpet on. He's rolling out a red carpet for you. And this is the word I believe that's for you and from, for, for, for all of us, really, that God is rolling out a red carpet for you. We don't understand the half of how God delights in us or the half of what our identity is 
And I, I think, why has God used this particular, you know, what, do I need to know that I'm, I have a royal identity? Yes, you do. Because I think there's something that just heightens it for you. I think I was trying to communicate on Thursday that, um, you know, many of us know we are in Christ Jesus as a position. You know, we're accepted by God, we're loved by God, and that's, that's great. But what does it do to our sense of identity? And as, as our awareness of our intimacy with the Father grows, so the amazing new identity that he's given us, and somehow there's something about this sense of royalty that kind of brings it, brings it home. I don't know if it's because it's always been something, if you, you know, whatever nation you come from, it's always been something that's been somebody else's prerogative. You know, the people at the top of society, the king or queen or chief or you know, senior politician, whoever it is, and it's something, you know, in the nature of human society, there's always somebody at the top, and most of us are kind of down here. So most of us don't get the whole royalty concept. And yet, of course, you know, when you read scripture, God never intended, you know, there's this kind of battle, isn't it, that goes on in Israel. We want a king, like all the other nations. And Samuel, you know, the prophet, you know, is talking to God, and God said, God says, you, you don't... You don't, have, you don't need a king. You shouldn't have a king because he's the king. No, we want a king. And almost like it's a concession to you know, their insistence. He says, okay, I'll give you a king. But it's going to cost you. <laughs> it's going to cost you to keep that king you know, in, in that place with his horses and his warriors and whatever. Uh, and, uh, you know, and as they say, the rest is history. I know there are some good kings. You know... Uh, David obviously being one of those, and out of David's line comes the Messiah. So, you know, God, God kind of can redeem the, our mistakes and use them to his purposes. But nonetheless, so much of the... Isn't it a great read, the Old Testament? One and two kings, you know, one Samuel, two Samuel, one and two kings. They're not often our favourite passages, apart from the bits about Elijah and Elijah. Uh, but, you know, some pretty bad kings go on, don't they? And uh, the number of good kings is far outweighed by the number of people who just mess it up. You know, the sins of so-and-so were greater than the sins of so-and-so. The recurrent theme. You know, it's really good. You know, get it into your devotion time. It's great. <laughs> Chronicles is similar. Uh, but uh, God always intended that you should be in Christ Jesus and that his royalty would be reflected in your identity. Why? Because you've been made like him. And there are many characteristics that God is conforming you to, and this is probably one of the overlooked ones. What have I done with the clicker? I'll put it... It's down there, thank you. So, this was the revelation for elevation. Let's just, put, just pause. It's God wants to... do something in your heart and in your mind. Holy Spirit, just come and reveal your true nature to us. Oh, just come and reveal that sense of, of royalty that God has called us. You have called us, Lord, into a royal place. You've called us to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, but a royal priesthood. 
was saying, saying yesterday, you know, that, that Christ, the word Christ means anointed one. It's, it's like God wants to anoint us with royalty. He wants to smear us, to be anointed. It's, you know, it literally means to be smeared with something. And in this case, this is the anointing of God on your, right, right into your spirit, right into your being. <clears throat> And if it works for you, just, just imagine yeah, you are in that throne room and it's, it's a kind of curious picture, but it's like, you know, God is knighting you. So it is a rise, sir, or dame, maybe it would be for women. And yet it's even greater than that. You know, we don't know the half sometimes of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, isn't it? But it was to bring us into a totally new understanding and reception of, of, of the nature that he's put inside us. So, we are in Christ Jesus, the King of Kings, or the King and the Prince of Peace. Because, you know, as we well know, um, Prince is one of the titles for Christ. Oh, slow coming up. We are sons of God, the Father. We, here's the thing. Often we know that we're saved, well, obviously we know we're saved, and we're secure... But we're also splendid. Okay? Sometimes, we, just when we think we've got all that the gospel intends, we suddenly find there's another aspect of it. And, and next year, next month, there may be another aspect that comes home to you. And it's not like it's fresh biblical revelation. It's there, isn't it? It's just kind of, kind of, kind of you know, coming to terms with this idea... You are this sparkling personality. There's a, you know, so in the natural, it's, it's funny the things we say, isn't it? How would you, what would you do in your home if the Queen was coming round? <gasps> I'd clean it up, I'd decorate it, you know, I'd, I'd make it special. And you know, there's not nothing wrong in that in one, on one level. But why would we have that kind of attitude to our Queen, who is a dear lady, but actually is no different from you and me, essentially? You know, in her nature, and I mean, she's different in background and wealth and all those things uh, on a human level. But it's interesting, isn't it? Some of this, some of the revelation about your identity, we'll, we'll get to a bit more of this later. Is, is difficult to receive because of the mindset that you have around the concept. So when Chris Valentin said to us, you're a prince or you're a princess, and I'm going, really? That revelation is landing somewhere in my thinking and I've got to work out why I'm not receiving it, why I think it's not even in the Bible, or why, is it, why do I need this? You know, I've been a Christian for... How many years at that stage? Probably about 40 years. Why do I need to know something new? <laughs> it's a bit arrogant, really, isn't it? When you think about it. 
The Holy Spirit cries, Abba, Father, into our hearts. It's rooted in the whole idea that, you know, the Father loves you and you are adopted into his family. It's Mark Stibbe in his book, Heirs from, from, heirs from Orphans to Heirs. 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 Heirs, sorry. As in heirs. Oh, yeah. It is from Orphans to Heirs, isn't it? Where he talks about, in the Protestant church generally, how we stress, you know, justification so much to the neglect of the doctrine of adoption. Now, I think we've made some headway in sort of catching up with that. But actually, as I like to say to people, you get what you preach. And if you preach justification by faith enough, you really will get it. And that's great. But if it's at the expense of other doctrines, then there'll be other doctrines you haven't really quite got. And the adoption into God's family can be one of those. Even though we know in theory that we are sons of the Father, if you add into that, well, if you're a son of the Father who is a king, then you are a prince in his kingdom. You are part of the royal family. That starts to mean something else, doesn't it? In the way that we look at ourselves. And let's remember we have permission to think about ourselves. Because actually God's thinking about us all the time, isn't he? Imagine the father saying, I want you to think, you know, I'm thinking about you all the time. But don't you dare think about yourself. Don't give yourself any time. Don't, don't start all this, you know, almost like getting, I mean, in, in many ways it boils down to fear, isn't it? Let's not be afraid. Never be afraid of God's truth. So if he's saying you're part of a royal priesthood, then embrace it. And then see what happens. Okay? Because there are implications for having a new identity. Royal priesthood. There's those two verses. Here's the one in Revelation. I love this translation from the message version where, that, that talks about it, you know, us being a kingdom of priests. And although Revelation is looking into heaven and saying in heaven you'll be a kingdom of priests, as you know, we pray, let your kingdom come, come in guys, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if you're going to be part of a kingdom of priests in heaven, then you can be getting ready for that because there's a foretaste of that here on earth. So Revelation talks about us being king priests, literally translated king priests talked about this on Friday. Just think for a moment what a Christian actually is, that you've been baptised into the death of Christ, raised with him for his resurrection, and now are ascended into heaven. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, how many know where, how many of you know the date for Ascension Day? Anybody celebrate Ascension Day? They do it at school, don't they? Yeah. I'm not sure what they do about it. At school, do they? We went for a service. Uh, Church of England School? Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, which is great. But it's not part of our national consciousness, is it? I would would suggest, anyway. You know, if you're you're like, you know, fortunate to be in in a school like that that's making something of it. So, Easter, Christmas is absolutely rooted in our culture, isn't it? You know, and even if we get a bit dismayed about some of the aspects of Christmas, it's over-commercialisation or like, it's there in the national psyche you know, in our, in our mentality, in our culture we all go out and 
spending hundreds of pounds, you know, on buying presents for that. We celebrate it, you know, and at the heart of it, we know as Christians, is a really important event. Easter, it's in our mentality. And we know, you know, we know we live Easter every day. It's not just something we do, you know, whenever Easter is and it keeps changing, uh, end of March, beginning of April, whatever. But, um, but the, but Ascension hasn't got the same attention, has it? And even in our preaching, how often do you get sermons about the ascension? And yet, when you ask yourself this question, where is Jesus now? Where is Jesus now? He's ascended. He's not on the cross, although you know, as central as the cross is. He's not even just risen from the dead, essential as the resurrection is. You know, without the resurrection, there is no faith. We, you know, faith is not, you know, <laughs> Jesus is dead, he hasn't rise. There's no gospel. But he's now raised up to the highest place, and you have been raised up with him. So you are simultaneously alive here, but actually alive in him, seated with him, Ephesians 2 verse 6, is seated with him in heavenly places. Just say, I'm seated on this chair. Because that hasn't been seated on this chair. But I am seated, seated with him, with him, him in, heavenly places. in heavenly places. I'm sat next to God. I'm sat in God. Which is kind of a weird idea in a way, isn't it? But, you know, if you are in Christ Jesus, which you are, and Christ is in heaven, then you are seated in the place of royalty. There is no higher royalty than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It just doesn't get any better than that, doesn't it? But our understanding <coughs> and our experience of that has got to catch up with the truth. But it does start with getting hold of the truth. We are glorious. Again, turn to the person next to you and say, You are glorious. You are so glorious. You are more glorious than you realise. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 3.16. I love that. Uh, have you noticed the 3.16 verses? Right? I mean, it doesn't always work, but you know, John 3.16, uh, Colossians 3.16. Anybody know that one? Let the Christ, word of Christ dwell in you richly. Yeah, it's a great, great <coughs> verse. And then you've got, you know, 2 Corinthians 3.16, but being in the authorised version, being changed from one degree of glory to another. So what you just said to one another, you're glorious, well, tomorrow you'll have to refresh that, because tomorrow you're going to be more glorious. You are constantly changing. In one sense, you're always glorious, but increasingly glorious. Same with every aspect of our character, isn't it? We're holy, but we're becoming more holy. We're loving, but becoming more loving. And so on. What else have we got? We're kingdom people, not just church people. Now, you will really have to read the book to get this one. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to kind of labour this. But I, one of, the re, you know, the, um, one of the things I really puzzled over for a long time was, why haven't I got this before? Why has nobody ever taught about royal identity? You know, the, the book that I went for in the Bethel bookshop was Chris Vallotton's Supernatural Ways of Royalty. I thought, that's just a really interesting title. 
had a bit of a weird cover as well. So, you know, I don't always do weird, but on this occasion I did. And, uh, and I read it and I thought, I have never read anything about my royal identity. Or even, or even that phrase that never occurred to me. You know, um, and this is supernatural ways of royalty. Now, folks, if you're going to be a powerful Christian, if you're going to be released in all that God has for you, then you need to you need to grasp this idea that you're actually a you know a really changed person. You need to understand everything about your identity. And sometimes we have let the church and this. You know, if I, you know, please don't hear what I'm not saying. There is nothing wrong with the church. The church is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. It's a, it's an amazing, uh, you know, not only concept but you know, its expression in the world is is just absolutely incredible, isn't it? But, and I think maybe this is part of our Western Christianity that we've got so used to the church being a fairly small, relatively ineffective kind of organisation. You know, in our society generally, when you use the word church, what's the general reaction? The general reaction. What did I hear? Boring. Boring, yes. Boring. Church. Well, no, probably some of us have experienced a a little bit of that sometimes. But it's the most incredible, life-changing, hope for the world thing that's going, isn't it? But one of our problems when it comes, you know, do you know the idea that a, a koi carp will only grow as big as the pond it's in? Yeah? Put it in a big pond, and that little sort of goldfish, the koi carp, will actually get bigger. Why? Because it's in a bigger pond. I don't know the biology, that's something you can explain that later. But you, know, but you know what it's like, isn't it? And if you're, in a, you know, if you're at work in a bigger organisation, the opportunities, the promotion opportunities, the things you might get to do far outstrip usually that of a small organisation. Well, let me suggest to you, and again, you'll have to read it in more detail in, in, if you're going to get the Royal Identity book, that actually part, part of our identity, or a, whole, a lot of our identity, has been shaped by the church that we belong to. Now, this is not knocking your church. But if your church hasn't got a kingdom mentality, and the church is part of the kingdom... But the kingdom is far bigger. What is the kingdom? Well, there are all sorts of definitions, but here, here's one to think about. The rule and reign of Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, and in that sense is in the whole universe, he's ruling and reigning over the whole thing, isn't it? This church, wonderful it is, doesn't stretch to Mars. Well, not yet, as far as I know. <laughs> the rule and reign of Jesus does, doesn't it? In fact, the rule and reign of Jesus doesn't stop at Mars. It goes on. To the billions, get this, I mean this is straight out of the mouth of um, Brian Cox, you know, who you all know, Brian Cox, on the telly. You know, said the other day, and I just, I can't get my head around this, that there are two trillion, I can't even think of a trillion, can you get to a million and maybe a hundred million, a billion starts to, well what does a billion look like? You know, two trillion galaxies. Now think about it, you live on planet Earth, planet Earth is part of the solar system, the solar system is part of the Milky Way, the Milky Way is our galaxy and it's billions of stars. You know, we don't get anywhere near seeing how big, how vast the universe is when we look up at the sky. We just see a little bit of our Milky Way, 
That's one galaxy. You live in a universe of two trillion galaxies. That's not two trillion stars, that's two trillion galaxies, and in each galaxy there are billions of stars. The kingdom's quite big, isn't it? <laughs> and if you can get hold of, I mean, you don't have to think about the universe, you know, that's just too, too big. You know, just think that the rule and reign of Jesus is over the whole earth. Not only in the present, but also in the past and, of course, in the future. And you are part of that. You are a king priest in that kingdom. <sighs> Should make you feel big. Should excite you, shouldn't it? That actually, when you tap into the resources of God's kingdom, you're tapping into the rule and reign of a king who rules the whole universe. That should do something to your sense of identity. Now, don't, don't go the opposite way and think, blimey, if it's that big, how insignificant am I? Because that king of the whole universe lives in you. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? It blows your mind. Well, it should do. The truth is always too good to be true. I say that again. The truth is always too good to be true, otherwise, it probably wouldn't be the truth. Yeah? God's truth is just amazing. It just takes you to a totally different place in your life, doesn't it? So we it's important that you, yeah, you're part, you know, you're part of a local church, that you're part of, you know, this is how you work out the kingdom. But actually, you're part of a much bigger thing, <laughs> if I can put it that way than you can ever think or imagine. You are part of that. You're an integral part of that. And you have a part to play. God is saying, he's not, you know, he doesn't wander around looking at his troops thinking, well, there's millions of here, who shall I use? You know, he's using every one of you. You're all an important part of it because you're all on the same level. You know, when we think of equality, we tend to think of bringing everybody down to the same level. God's idea of equality is bringing us up to the same level. Very, very important that you get hold of that, isn't it? Because you are all seated with him in heavenly places. We're going to have a break in about ten minutes and I've asked Ruth if she'll just give her testimony of the changes, that, the amazing changes. Ruth is an amazing person. The amazing changes that have come about in her life and her change.